0: I'm Frank Andorka, Editorial Director of Solar Power World Magazine. Welcome to another edition of Solar Speaks, Solar Power World's podcast series that gives you the opportunity to hear from the industry's biggest newsmakers in their own words. Welcome to Part 2 of our conversation with Arno Harris, CEO of Recurrent Energy and Chairman of SIA. In this episode, Arno discusses grid interconnection and the looming expiration of the investment tax credit that faces the industry in 2016, as well as what SEA will be doing to further the industry's cause this year. This podcast is brought to you by Festo Corporation. Here, Damon Turley offered tips on keeping production costs low and saving you money. Festo, your partner in the solar industry. Now let's turn our attention to 2014 and beyond. One of the most interesting challenges the industry will face in the coming year is grid interconnection. Um, I know this is also a passion of yours. Share your thoughts with our audience about what it will take to make that happen, if it should happen at all.
1: Well, I think it's really an important question. Looking at the future of what solar can offer our country, we're in a world now where cost is no longer the primary objection. And so the major thing that will be a gate on just how large a role solar can play in our future clean energy system really is putting together a compelling vision for how we build a grid that can accommodate a lot of variable generation. And when you look at the grid that we have today, it's basically a grid that was designed with the idea that you had a fossil-fired power plant in one place pushing electricity one way to load or, or energy users in another place. And I think what we've seen and what a lot of experts will tell you is that you can get to maybe 30 or 40% renewables, wind and solar, on that system without making a whole lot of changes to the way it works. But if you want to go beyond that, and the reason you want to go beyond that is because I think it's really clear that you've got to decarbonize the electric power sector to address the issue of climate change. You want to go beyond that. You want to get to much higher levels of penetration. You've really got to start to redirect the investment in the grid to make it more flexible and make it work better with a lot of wind and solar on it, a lot more than we have today. And I think there are some some key things that that we're we're building consensus around around what we need to do. Fundamentally, we just need to invest in this concept of flexibility. And flexibility really breaks out into three major pieces. You've got investment in transmission which allows you to move power around more effectively across regions so that you can take it from where the wind's blowing or the sun is shining to where you've actually got people using power. You have to invest more in flexible generating products. So that might be things like natural gas. It might also be things like storage, but it's technologies that can ramp up and down quickly and respond to the needs of the power grid to keep the supply of energy and usage of energy in balance. And then the third piece is really out at the distribution end of the grid. You've got to be able to use things like demand response and like distributed generation and distributed storage to increase our control over the load that's on the system, again, to help operators keep it in balance. So you put those three things together, regional transmission, flexible products, and distribution-level flexibility, and you end up with a system that could get to, many experts estimate, 70% or more renewable electricity. And that's that's really where we've got to go.
0: When you look at solar's future, do you see it developing along the lines of traditional centralized distribution as we talked about in on the 19th century grid that we have? Or do you see it moving more in the direction of distributed generation?
1: I think it's a false choice. I think it's got to be both. And that's because I think, first of all, solar is one of the unique generating technologies out there in that it can be deployed on the rooftop or at utility scale. The reality is that if we are going to move to seriously decarbonize the electric power sector, we're going to need to put as much as we possibly can on the grid. And it really delivers different value in different locations. On the rooftop, you're putting power as close as possible to where it's actually used. And I think you're also offering customers a real choice about where their power comes from, how much it costs. And at utility scale, you're getting to deploy large volumes of clean generating capacity to operate as a real viable alternative to those traditional fossil-fired thermal plants. The way I see it, I don't think there is as much a conflict as is sometimes made between those two models. The reality is they're quite compatible, and they really need each other. I think it's worth digging into that a little bit further. The first is just from a DG perspective, distributed generation perspective. The reality is that in a world in which you have high amounts of DG, the grid becomes more important than ever, and that's because even with a large amount of rooftop solar customers that deploy that technology still end up needing the grid both to sell excess generation as well as to have the grid there for backup. And the reality is not every customer can be self-sufficient. And so the grid is gonna be with us for the foreseeable future. It's just that DG is gonna play an increasingly important role in giving customers choice. The utility scale, there's a lot of benefit that comes from, we obviously wanna go as far as we can in terms of of replacing dirty generation with clean generation-like solar. But in order to do that, you need that flexibility we were just talking about. And part of that flexibility comes from having distributed generation on the system that can help the load be flexible in a way that allows operators to keep supply and demand in balance. So I actually think there's a very compatible symbiotic relationship that the two have. And I think the future we're heading towards is going to feature both.
0: Arno, one of the other questions the industry will have to start looking at in 2014 is the expiration two years hence of the ITC. What's your view of what's going to happen with that legislation? What are the odds an extension will pass? And do you think that that looming sort of Damocles hangover over the industry will distort the number of gigawatts the United States installs over the next two years because everybody is going to try be trying to put projects on the ground before it expires?
1: I think the first thing I'd say is just the industry needs to make a strong case for the benefit the ITC has provided and why it's important to extend it. And I think that the truth is that we're seeing that now as solar becomes part of our mainstream energy picture and that solar is now a viable alternative in part thanks to the ITC in helping to decarbonize our Power sector. The add-on benefits of that are a tremendous amount of economic development. The industry now employs over 120,000 Americans, and the industry has been one of the bright spots in an otherwise pretty disappointing economic picture. And that is, again, in large part thanks to the support that the investment tax credit provides. I think the politics around what it's going to take to extend that credit a little bit further is really hard to read reality is that the way things are done in Washington and with the current configuration of Washington, I think it's really hard to get anything moved forward. And unless something's screamingly urgent and expiring tomorrow, it's really hard to get traction in D.C. on that kind of issue. The thing that the industry, through SIA's leadership, has put forward is the idea that there's a a really straightforward way to provide the industry the certainty it needs without having to advance a really politically difficult extension, and that is to do with the ITC what the industry did last year with the PTC, the production tax credit, which benefits the wind industry. And that's to provide, shift the requirement from placing a project in service to earn the tax credit to simply commencing construction. And I think that's something that Congress could move on as part of an extender's package that would not raise the politically challenging question of extending the deadline, but would instead simply change the qualification for the tax credit. And that would effectively provide a couple more years of room for developers to bring projects to market. And I think you bring up a really good point in your question about why it would be important to do that. And that is the kind of cliff expiration that we're facing in 2016 does run the risk of really distorting the market in that way. And last year, we saw 12 gigawatts of wind get delivered. Some cases, some some estimates are even higher than that, but I think this year we're going to see, I think, around one. And so what that reflects is just the fact that the wind in saw the PTC credit expiring last year, and so everybody rushed to put all their projects on the ground. And it's just it's another example of how kind of a boom-bust mentality develops around timing of the expiration of various policies, and that would be something that ultimately would be better for the industry and better, I'd argue, for America to figure out a smoother way to make that transition. The good news is, in the long term, solar costs continue to come down, and with where we see conventional power prices going, the industry is going to be competitive sometime in the next five years. And I think that that is really the important thing in advocating immense construction or extension of the ITC is really recognizing that we are on a path to becoming economically competitive. Without that credit, it's just that we need a few more years to get it done.
0: You were talking about the boom and bust mentality that's developed, and I know you probably watched this as closely as I did. When the 1603 energy program went away, you had that same surge. People were talking about, oh, we've got to get these projects on the ground before the end of the year because otherwise we're going to lose this, the 1603 program. And that's why I'm worried that as the expiration of the ITC approaches, you're going to see that same kind of distortion. And then you create an expectation for that amount of growth every year, and it's just not realistic. So that's my biggest worry moving forward on that. If you could pick one priority for SIA for 2014, what would it be? And I ask this completely tongue-in-cheek, are we going to see a national energy policy in
1: our future? Well, I had some reverse order. I, I share your skepticism about getting a national energy plan in place. I just don't think we have the climate in Washington that would allow us to get to agreement about how to set those priorities and, and put them into law. Through the EPA's right to regulate carbon emissions as a pollutant, we're going to be able to make a lot of progress in beginning to put a price on carbon nationally. And I agree with most other I think experts out there that Getting a price on carbon is one of the most important things we can do to affect change in terms of how we're building the electric power fleet for the future. In terms of SIA's priorities, I mean, we're certainly going to be involved in that discussion. But I think, and there are a number of other, I would say, nuts and bolts type policy issues at the state level that we're going to advance that keep RPS moving forward, keep local carbon policies moving forward, and ensure that, that solar has fair access to the grid through interconnection standards for both utility scale and small scale projects. And of course, net metering will be a priority. But I think in the big picture, if I boil it down to one thing we need to do, it really is, as an industry, we need to recognize that in becoming part of the mainstream power picture, we need to be imagining ourselves as good citizens of the grid. That phrase for me has an awful lot of meaning. It really is about recognizing that part of our culture as an industry is going to have to change as part of the transition that our industry is experiencing and becoming more mainstream. And instead of seeing ourselves as on the outside demanding a seat at the table, we've got to recognize that we have to present solutions to some of the challenges that solar as a technology presents at high levels of penetration. And those are technology challenges and market-level challenges and regulatory challenges, and What we really need as an industry to do is embrace this idea that as part of a mainstream energy industry, we need to put forward that compelling picture of how the grid works with lots of solar on it, how utilities work, and how it works within the regulatory systems we have to deliver what customers ultimately want, which is clean, affordable, and reliable electricity. And
0: I think we're going to be able to do that. This has been the second part of Solar Power World's discussion about the industry and its issues with Arno Harris, CEO of Recurrent Energy and Chairman of SIA. Tune in next week for the final installment of this series when Arno discusses what's on Recurrent Energy's horizon in 2014 and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by Festo Corporation. Here, Damon Turley offer tips on keeping production costs low and saving you money. Festo, your partner in the solar industry. I'm Frank Andorka, Editorial Director of Solar Power World Magazine. Until next time.